following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. I don't know about you, I just have a hard time watching the news. I have a hard time even just watching shows on TV because they do a great job at depicting the brokenness of the world, but they fail miserably in presenting the hope uh, of Christ in the midst of it. And so we come regularly, I hope on a daily basis for you, but at the very minimum a weekly basis, that we come and we gather together in part to bring glory and honor to the Lord, to sing praise to Him, to worship Him, but also to be restored in our souls. Because it's a long week and there's a lot that gets taken out and it's good to come back to God's Word and to hear from Him, and to be renewed by Him, and to be restored by Him. And I'm sure that most of you were drawn this week to 2 Samuel chapter 7, because you always love the Old Testament, because we're naturally drawn to the historic narrative, that somehow David's life is going to speak into my 21st century American world, and it's going to have something to say about it, that somehow reading about a dead guy Uh, in Israel is going to have profound impact on me today in my marriage, in my uh, schooling, in my friendships, in my parenting, in my singleness, in my work, uh, whatever it is in my retirement, that somehow this is going to have something to say. And the fact of the matter is it has an awful lot to say. And the reason it has an awful lot to say uh, is because it's God's word. It's not mine, and it's not David's words, it's God's word. And he said, my word uh, will have a powerful impact, it will never return void, but it will do the work in which it was designed to do. And so my hope today for you is that these words that we're going to read about David, uh, when David had a great plan, David had a great idea, and God, in response to David's great idea, looked at him and said, no, not yet, and not you. And we love being told no, right? You just enjoy that no. Yeah, no. We don't like being told no from the earliest moments. Even We don't have to train that into children. Children uh, come out of the womb believing that their ideas are the best ideas. It's just natural to humanity. We believe that what we have conjured up in our minds, even prayerfully thought about in our hearts, Uh, we need to come to fruition. And when God says no, we wrestle with that. When God's plans don't align with our plans. I want to do a little poll. How many of you in the course of your life, those of you who have walked with Christ for a season, or maybe those of you who are just uh, trying to figure all of this out, how many of you have run into instances in your life experience where your plans and God's plans didn't align perfectly? Anybody? Okay, I want to make sure that you hear that. Everybody's in the same boat. So that means David has something to teach us through his life and engagement with God this morning. And so what we're going uh, to learn uh, today is less about David, per se, and a whole lot more about God. And I think that's the right way to do it. And so we're going to learn about a God who humbles us. We're going to learn about a God uh, whom we can trust And we're going to learn about a God who takes our breath away. A God who humbles us, a God that we can trust, and a God who takes our breath away. First, a God who humbles us. If you have your Bibles, you can turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 
We're going to read together now the first seven verses. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought you, brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved, where all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? So consider the situation for a moment. David is in a time of peace. There, verse 1 says uh, that all the enemies have been subdued. The the kingdom is united. Uh, They have it established in Jerusalem. The Ark of the Covenant has been brought in and is there. uh, And worship is established around it. The Levites are established uh, around it. And so there is uh, peace, as it were, within uh, the realm And David is living in his beautifully manicured house of cedar, Uh, no moth problems whatsoever uh, in his home, and he had this beautiful house, which was uh, a way of simply saying it was an ornate and luxurious home. And so things are going well for David. But David, being a man after God's own heart, who lived this undaunted life, he realized, and he was bothered. I'm living in this beautiful house, the king of Israel, living in a kingly estate. But yet the true king of the entire world is living in a tent. He's living in a house made of curtains, and that's not right. I'm bothered by that, and I think I should build God a temple. I think I should build him a true house worthy uh, of his name because he deserves it. It would be honoring uh, to him. So David uh, comes up with this plan, which, by the way, is a noble plan. It's a rational plan. It's a reasonable plan. It's a, a right plan. And all signs point to go. David's talking with Nathan. And Nathan looks at David and says, Do whatever's in your heart. Go for it. Nathan being the prophet who was the mouthpiece of God uh, to the king. And so David now had spiritual uh, stamp on it to get from the church as it were. Uh, Hey, this is a great idea. You should go and do this. And so I imagine David uh, was getting excited uh, about the idea of building God uh, a temple uh, in uh, Jerusalem. And that night, Nathan has an encounter with the Lord. And the Lord says to Nathan, no. You need to go back to David and you need to tell David no. You need to tell David, he uses a rhetorical question where the answer is no. Go and tell David my servant, verse 5. Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? And the answer being no. And so after this consideration, Nathan comes back to David and he tells him that. He says, you don't get to build the house. You, you, you don't get to build the house. And I wonder how David's initial reaction was. We're not given the initial reaction. 
We're given a longer treatment by Nathan explaining God's reasoning as it were at some level, but less about reasoning and more about God saying, I want to point you to something beyond a temple. I want to explain something to you. And so what we encounter in this first point is that when God's plan and our plans don't line up, it confronts our ego and it humbles us because it brings us to the end of our own understanding. This becomes a point of humility for us because our limitations are on full display because we are now being forced to willfully submit ourselves to God's plan when our plan seems to be quite perfect. Our plan seems to be quite good. And that plan for us may not be building a temple for God. But that plan for us might be this. God, I think it would be really best within your kingdom dynamic and within all of your work that I need to be married. Because marriage is a better vehicle for the gospel than singleness. And then God, once you get that plan set up and... uh, you want me to be married, and I get married to a godly man or a woman, I'm at least willing to follow your protocols on that. I won't marry a non-believer, but I do want to be married. I really believe that children are best, because you say that children are a blessing from the Lord. And so it would be really good for you to bless me with marriage, and it would be good for you to bless me with children, and then I would need to provide for my children, and so make sure that you get me all that I need Uh, that I need to move up in the corporate ladder and move up in the corporate chain and to move up within uh, whatever economy I'm in and I need to be uh, all of this. And we come with our various and sundry different plans. God, I'm graduating from high school and it would seem that the very best thing to do would be to go to the greatest university in all of the world. And so I'd like to get into Chapel Hill and that would be awesome. But it's difficult out of state, but I've determined that this is your best thing for you to do. I've determined that I should go to a university. I've determined that maybe I should do this or I should do that. You fill in the blanks. We come up with lots of reasonable and good and rational and noble ideas and plans for the Lord. Have any of you ever had reasonable, rational, noble plans that you've laid out before the Lord? We all do. We all have them. And when we present them to the Lord, and the answer comes back, no. No. It's incredibly difficult. When Lisa and I lost our third child to miscarriage, it's incredibly difficult to reconcile our plan that God, you really should bless us with a child so that we could be a bigger blessing to the world because that's what you do. When I'm crawling around under a house, Uh, After quitting my job in banking, committing my life to the Lord and promising to go into full-time Christian ministry because that's what I believe God was calling me uh, to do. And I'm literally crawling in a crawl space under uh, a house uh, going to fix toilets. And the way that you know a toilet isn't working is it leaks. And so all that stuff, fill in the blank, was under the house. And I'm trotting through, knee-deep in it, smelling it. And covered in it in a Shawshank Redemption kind of moment. (laughs) And thinking, really? 
I quit my banking job. I'm following you into ministry. And I'm literally crawling and wallowing around in, and I wasn't honoring the Lord in what I said under that house, crawling around in this filth. Your plan and my plan, God, they do not seem to be coming together very well right now. And when I had a loved one die, or you had a loved one die, or when your body was riddled with cancer, or you lost a child, or you lost all of your wealth, or your spouse walked out on you and left you to raise your children on your own, or whatever it is, when all of a sudden the plans that you had determined and the plans that God had aren't the same plans, it leaves us in a place of incredible humility. Because we have to ask ourselves, maybe I don't know right. Maybe my plan wasn't the best plan. And we're confronted in this place of great humility that God is calling us to be humble. And we love opportunities for humility, don't we? We just love the opportunity to admit, maybe I wasn't right. Humility doesn't come naturally. But humility comes supernaturally. And God, interestingly, right here, I only have a moment to introduce it, but God, interestingly enough, in his response to David right here, introduces himself not only as a God who humbles us, but as a humble God. Because he says, hey, David, where was I when the people were wandering around in the desert? I was wandering with them. Where was I when the people were only living in tents? I was living in a tent. When the people were going through the desert, guess where I was? I'm a God who goes with my people into tents and deserts and wanderings. I'm an incredibly humble God. And I never demanded a big house, David. Because, you see, I'm a God who has as part of my complexity and part of my character, humility. And so I'm asking you to find a humility that you will only find in me. But you will find it if you come to me. Isn't that fascinating? That it's a God who humbles us, but in part he humbles us by his own humiliation and his own humility. Because he said, you see, down the road, I'm a God who's going to get humiliated in order to save. I'm a God who is willing uh, to come, Philippians chapter 2, and take on the form of a bondservant and dwell among you and be destroyed on your behalf. Because I'm a humble God. And so if I expect and desire humility out of you, it's only because you will find it in me. And so for those of us who wrestle uh, with humility and pride, we have a source to go to. But we first have a God who humbles us when our plans don't match up perfectly with his plans. So then what do we do? We're at that point where our plans and God's plans don't align and we wonder what we're going to do. What is it that should happen? Well, we find at least here uh, what we can do is we find a God that we can trust. Verses 8 to 17. A God that we can trust. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place 
for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may, be, may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Isn't that fascinating language? David wanted to make him a house, and the Lord says, I will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you and you shall come from your, and they shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever and I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son and he commits iniquity. I will discipline him with the rod of men and the stripes of sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. So I took it from, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before me, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision Nathan spoke to David. So how do we reconcile our good plans in light of God's answer to us of no, of not yet, or of not you? You see, the God who guides David here is the same God who guides you today. There's a consistency in that. The God who was so beautifully considerate of David's maybe disappointment is the same God who takes all of our disappointments and lovingly turns them towards Himself and shows us that He is a God who can be trusted. And He turns back first to this. And He says, look, David... Bill, folks at Hilton Head Prez today, I'm a covenant-keeping God. I'm a covenant-making, and I'm a covenant-keeping God. Chapter 7 of 2 Samuel is one of the most profound chapters in all of Scripture, for it is within uh, the string of the covenantal language of God, uh, from the covenant of works at the beginning, uh, to uh, Abraham, and to Noah, and now the covenant with David, and the new covenant uh, that brings to us this covenant of grace in Christ. And a covenant is a relationship. It's not language that we use much. But quickly, let me give you the 30-second skinny. A covenant is when a king, someone in a place of authority, comes to someone conquered and says to them, I'm going to enter into relationship with you and I'm going to make certain promises. I'm going to be your king. You're going to be my people. You will pay me taxes. You will pay homage to me. You will do your part. You won't rebel against me. You'll obey the law. Uh, but I'm going to protect you and I'm going to make sure that everything is good within the kingdom. And if one of us breaks the covenant vows that we have made, blood is going to be shed. And a covenant was made when the king would take the vassal or the other person and they would split a bull and rams or something like that and they would kind of walk in between them in this little figure eight circle and it would basically say this, so let it be done to me if I break my covenant promises. God is a covenant-making God who enters into these covenants with us And the fascinating thing about the covenant that God has made with us is you would remember if you go into Genesis and you look at the covenant that God made with Abraham. Where was Abraham when God was walking through all the split bulls and the rams and the doves and all? Do you remember? He was asleep. Because God was saying this, Abraham and descendants of Abraham, you guys can't keep up your end of the bargain. You're going to fail. And because of your failures, blood is going to have to be spilled. But here's what is going to happen. I'm going to walk through it. 
And I'm going to now to let my blood and the blood of my son Christ come and be spilled on your behalf. He will be split. He will be destroyed so that you can gain the covenant blessings of the kingdom. And Abraham woke up and was like, wow, this is awesome. You know what this thing is here, this table? It's a covenant table. It's saying this, all of you who have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you get the covenant blessings because his body and his blood was spilt and crushed. Because we are really bad at covenant keeping. And so God with David turns David from the momentary disappointment of not being able to build a house and says this to David, David, I know you wanted to build me a house, but I've got something better for you. You're going to build my kingdom. Someone from your line will always sit upon the throne. There will always be a Davidic king on the eternal throne. So David, don't be upset about not being able to build me a temple. Don't listen to your friends to go that say, well, I mean, if you really want to be spiritual, you'd build God a temple. I mean, if you really want to be spiritual, you would do this. If you really want to be godly, you would do this. David, don't listen to any of those guys. Listen to me. You're significant. You are significant because I am going to use you to bring about the true King, Jesus Christ, who will always sit upon the throne. And by the way, I'm going to get my house built. Solomon's going to do it. You don't have to worry about that. You worry about you. You be you. You do what I've called you to do and don't worry about everything else because David, you are in an honored and in a blessed place. So for me to say no to you, that you don't get to have children, that you don't get to be married, that you don't get to have your spouse live with you uh, forever, that you don't get to have all the money in the world, that you don't get the promotion, that you don't get into the college that you want to get into, whatever it is, that you don't get out of the ticket that you're about to get today as you speed home. Uh, trying to get there. Well, God, I think it's a great plan for me not to get a ticket. Whatever the plan is, here's what you need to hear on the backside of that. Bill, you're a child of the King. Because I'm still a God who makes promises. And I'm still a God who makes these covenants. And so when I say no to you, when I say not yet, and when I say not you, Don't act like that little child whose ball went out on 278. And the child's first impulse when the ball goes out on 278 is to do what? Go get the ball. It's a good ball. That's a noble thing to do. Rescue the ball. It was a gift. It's a meaningful ball uh, within my economy and my worldview. I need to go get the ball. And the loving father stands and goes, nope. You can't run out on 278. But dad... That's not very loving. My ball is going to get run over. I'm not going to get the ball. And the dad has to go, you don't see everything like I see everything, little man. Little lady. Because I stand six feet six inches tall. This is obviously talking about another man. Uh, I stand six feet six inches tall. And I see down the road differently. And guess what's coming down the road? There's an 18-wheeler coming down the road on 278. And so what you need to do is you need to trust your dad on this one. So I appreciate your passion for wanting to go get the ball. But hear this. You're meaningful to me. You're more important than that ball. You're my child. And I absolutely and dearly love you. And you know that I have your best interest in mind. And so when I tell you no, not yet and not you, it's because I love you. 
And we need to hear those same things as adult children who are standing wanting to run out uh, into the world of 278 with all kinds of things going back and forth and thinking that our noble and good plans are the very best thing. And when God says no and not yet and not you, we have to hear what He is saying to us. I've created you perfectly and beautifully. That I've known you before the foundations of the world. That, I, that you are to me a tapestry. You are an artwork, a poema. And that I formed you in your mother's womb. And I don't make mistakes, and so you are meaningful to me. And that I am your God, and that you are my people. And that I have purchased you with a very high price. And that I have redeemed you from the curse of the law. And I will never leave you or forsake you. That my plans are to prosper you, and they're not to harm you. That I will not allow you to be destroyed. That I will come again one day and I will make all things right and new. And my ways are higher than your ways. My understandings more profound than your understandings. And you can trust me. When disappointments come, when our alignment and God's alignment don't seem to be the same I want you to hear behind it this covenant promise-making and promise-keeping God who is saying all of these things and to take whatever it is and to place it up against Him. And it doesn't mean that we don't mourn. It doesn't mean that we don't hurt. It doesn't mean that we don't experience humanity in the midst of that moment. But it means that we have to know and look beyond it to see something and to know that there is a God that we can trust For most of you, that is your greatest place of tension in your spiritual life. Can I trust God? Can I trust Him with my soul? Can I trust Him with my life? Can I trust Him with my marriage? Can I trust Him with my kids? Some of you kids are going, can I trust Him profoundly with my parents? Can I trust my God in all of these things? And God is screaming out through David and through Nathan and through His Word today, you can trust Me. You can trust Me. Even in the momentary sting of a no. In the momentary woundedness of a not now and a not you, you can still trust me because I'm a good, loving God. I'm a God who humbles us, you, but I'm a God you can trust. The final thing I want you to hear today is this, I'm a God who takes your breath away. God just doesn't leave it there. He could have, but we get to see David's response, which I think is awesome. And we get to look and hear what happened. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. I imagine that what that means is David went to the tabernacle, into the house of curtains, to where the Ark of the Covenant was. And David went in with the Lord. And he said, Really? Your plans stink, God. That's what the Hebrew really says. (laughs) No, that's what we would say. And David said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. This is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, 
You have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, alone, you alone are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation of earth whom God went to redeem, to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord, God, confirm forever the word that you've spoken concerning your servant, concerning his house to do as you've spoken. And your name will be magnified forever. The Lord of hosts is God over Israel. The house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are true And you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken. And with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. Amen. So how do we respond? How would we and how do we respond to Nathan's words to us? Really, the Lord's words to us. Maybe something like this. That's not fair. That's not fair. God, don't you love me? God, haven't you heard my prayers and my petitions? Maybe we jump to our own righteousness. God, don't you know that I have given my life to you? I've gone to church for you. I go to small groups for you. I tithe on the gross, not on the net. Uh, I do all of this. I share in my faith. I've been faithful to this person. I've loved these rascal children. Uh, I've done all of this stuff. Come on, God. Hold up your end of the bargain. God, if you really loved me, you would do this for me. But listen to how David responded. The king went in and he sat before the Lord. He said, who am I? He was amazed at the dignity and the value and the beauty of the glory of being called a child of God and a son of God and a king who would be established forever. David was overwhelmed. You didn't hear David go, yeah, but that was a really good idea. Come on, God, you got to at least give me that. He didn't say, really, Solomon? He's going to build you a temple and not me? David was so overwhelmed by the immensity of the plan of redemption that God had laid out before him that all he could do was worship and praise. It brought about perspective to him. So here's what I want to suggest for us. When you consider what goes on in your lives and in your hearts, consider it in light of the amazing grace that you have received through Christ Jesus. The amazing dignity, the amazing promises that have been yes and amen to you. The future that you have been given. All of those things. And it doesn't mean that the disappointments of this life don't sting. It just means that they don't devastate us. They hurt, but they don't destroy 
They have with them an edge, but not one that steals and takes our heart because we marvel in God's incredible grace that we're a redeemed people, we're a preserved people, we're a privileged people. He says established three times in verse 24 and uh, forever uh, three times. He says, listen folks, know who you are. Know who you are. Know what's happened to you in this amazing grace of your past and the amazing grace of your future that I'm doing these things for you. David, when he came before the Lord after hearing that he couldn't build the temple, I find it fascinating that he didn't have enough breath to criticize, critique, and complain. He only had enough breath to worship. That's my invitation for you and for my own heart. When we think that we have a great idea and God's answer is no, not yet or not you. That in the midst of dealing with that, make sure that you see and understand the beauty. Rehearse the redemptive story. Come to a table that says, yeah, David, you didn't get to build a house. But there's something even more than that. There's something that says to us, You're valuable. You're loved. And it takes our breath away. Let's pray. God, as we come to this table, we come, as it were, repenting. We come recognizing that we so often don't approve of your plans for us. And so, God, we come and we ask that you would forgive us when we have determined that our plans are better than your plans and we resent you when you don't answer in the way that we've determined is right. And so as we come now to this table, I pray that we would see your great blessing. We would see your incredible love to us. And we approach with confession. And so friends, I invite you to confess with me the prayer printed for you and and on the screen. Have mercy on us, O God, in your unfailing love. In your great mercy, wipe away our offenses. Wash us of our guilt. Wash us and we shall be clean. Purify us from our sin and lead us in the way everlasting. So Father, hear now our confessions as we bring them to you. Father, thank you for hearing, for responding. Amen. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by one man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Believe that you have been forgiven in Christ Jesus. Would you pray together with me this prayer of thanksgiving? Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is and ever shall be, world without end. Amen.